0: You know, as with any form of thing that, that falls under that umbrella of what we like to refer to as digital transformation, I think a lot of companies, when they're looking at these things, they tend to start by thinking in terms of you know new revenue opportunities, new lines of business and things like that, and that's useful. But I, I really think that there's a whole lot of opportunity under this idea of, of cost savings and helping companies actually run their businesses more efficiently.
1: Welcome to the Conversations on Applied AI podcast where Justin Grammons and the team at Emerging Technologies North talk with experts in the fields of artificial intelligence and deep learning. In each episode, we cut through the hype and dive into how these technologies are being applied to real-world problems today. We hope that you find this episode educational and applicable to your industry and connect with us to learn more about our organization at appliedai.mn. Enjoy!
2: Welcome, everyone, to the Conversations on Applied AI podcast. Today, we're talking with Brandon Satram. Brandon is the VP of Developer Experience and Engineering at Blue's Wireless, a driven technologist and experienced leader with a background in product management, strategy, architecture, software development, and developer advocacy. He describes himself as a technologist first and loves to use what he knows and learns to teach others how to build things and solve problems with the latest technologies and platforms. Finally, he has a mentor at the RIOT, accelerator program and will actually be presenting at our applied AI meetup on July 7th. He'll be speaking on Smarter Everything with the ML and the IoT. It's awesome that you're a mentor and giving back, Brandon. This is something that I have huge respect for, so thank you for doing all that you do to share your knowledge with the community. Welcome to the program.
0: Thanks, Justin. I'm happy to be here.
2: Well, great. You know, I gave a little bit of uh, background with regards to what you're doing today, but maybe you could share with the listeners, you know, how your career has progressed, I guess, you know, where, where you started and how you got to where you are today.
0: Yeah, great. So I have been working professionally in this technology space for 22 years now. Started, you know, way back when in the late 90s, doing primarily client server development in the Windows world. Spent several years as a front-end engineer, web developer in the early 2000s. My career kind of has two halves. There's a a half of the career that I spent mostly in the the front-end world, working for, you know, large Fortune 500 companies, doing consulting work, things like that. And then the second half of my career where I started getting into sort of the software tools and services world. And that started when I joined Microsoft around 2009, spent a couple of years working with Microsoft during the the HTML5 and Windows 8 era before jumping in to a a company that made web tools, developer tools called Telerik. And I worked for them for about four or five years And That was really when I first, I started getting into product management, started getting into more developer advocacy and team management. And one of the things that I've really loved over those, when I made that switch was getting into this place of being able to build tools for developers to actually really help developers solve problems at their companies and for their businesses. And so I've continued that. About six years ago, I made the switch into the IoT world, first as a maker and then as a professional, I think as many of us tend to do. So started tinkering around with Arduino and Raspberry Pi and all those things as one does, and then had an opportunity to join Particle. I spent a couple of years working with Particle on their developer platform, developer community. And then just about two years ago, uh, I joined a, a different IoT company called Blues Wireless. It was started by Ray Ozzie back in 2017. So done a lot of different things, but it, it is all really, as it says, as I had written in my bio, it, it all really focuses on getting to to help developers uncover and unblock sort of new, exciting things with technology.
2: That's awesome. And like I mentioned during the the thing, I'm really excited to hear you talk about Smarter Everything, you know, using machine learning and the Internet of Things, because this is a, a space, you know, my background has been very similar, I guess, you know, got into the Internet in the late 90s, you know, built a lot of web applications and moved actually more into mobile. I did a lot of work on iOS and Android, but then kind of really embraced the Internet of Things over the past 10 years or so. But this new space, really, I would sort of call it the merging of machine learning and AI with the Internet of Things, I think is really a fascinating space, sort of this concept around tiny ML. And I've seen some of your presentations that you've given um, at some of the NDC conferences and stuff like that. Are you working in that space?
0: I am a lot. And, and I, I have a real passion for, for AI and ML, even though my company doesn't, we don't build anything that's directly associated with AI or ML. Uh, In particular, I have been a fan of the ML and especially the tiny ML space since I think I first saw Pete Warden talking about it on a stage at a Google conference, I think maybe four or five years ago now. And so I spent some time when I was at Particle really getting into tiny ML, getting into TensorFlow Lite, worked with a Google Coral. I've done a bunch of work on doing sort of, I wouldn't even call it tiny ML on the Coral or on the Raspberry Pi, but really starting to get into exploring AI and ML on edge devices. Uh, and one of the things that I love the most about working in this space, especially being part of Blues, is that we're, we are focused on unblocking wireless connectivity, no matter what it may be, whether it's Wi-Fi or whether it's cellular, whether it's even technologies like LoRa and LoRaWAN. I do a lot of talks with our, with our with friends of mine at Edge Impulse, and one of the things that we like to talk about a lot is that Edge ML and cellular IoT go hand-in-hand hand because... We're moving away from this world where everything has to be streamed to the cloud. There's still a ton of great use cases for cloud-based ML, especially around model training, model development, retraining. But when it comes to actually doing inferencing, there's so many wonderful advantages to working at the edge. Not only do you have privacy, but it's also an opportunity to make decisions faster, even when cases where connectivity, where there's high latency, where connectivity is at a premium. And so... I spend a lot of time, and my team and I spend a lot of time working with using ML use cases as a way to show the value of bringing cellular IoT into solving many kinds of problems, whether it is monitoring of existing analog devices. We've done some work around those kinds of things, or whether it's adding ML at the edge to existing solutions. But you you said yourself, Justin, one of the reasons why there is this merging of AI and ML in the IoT is because I remember in my days at Particle, we would talk to a lot of customers that would come to us and would say, I I love what you guys are doing. I want to buy this. I want to use this platform of yours, but I also want to do some, some AI ML stuff. Can you guys help me with that? And the answer to those customers was always, well, if you're not already doing any data collection, there's not really anything we can sell you, right? Because... In order to build, to implement an AI or ML use case, you have to have something. You got to start with something. And when I give talks about this, what I always like to say is that the value, the raw materials in the AI ML space are at the edge. They're in sensors, they're in devices, they're the things that we're looking to monitor. So step one, a lot of times in building out an AI or ML solution is being able to have that data, those raw materials in the form of what you're actually sensing, what you're actuating, how you're actually monitoring. Uh, systems at the edge. And so I gave you a long answer to that question, but it's obvious. I mean, I, I love talking about this kind of stuff. And I think the the technologies are really, it makes a lot of sense that they're starting to become uh, really hand in hand.
2: Yeah, no, that's great. I couldn't agree more. What I've seen the internet of things happen over the past, I don't know, you know, eight to 10 years or so as I've been in this space is, you know, you have some companies that are embracing it and they're they're willing to go all in. And a lot of companies that, that I have worked with at Lab651 have really sort of dipped their toes into it, right? They're, and they don't, they don't see the, the value in the data, you know, quite yet. But once you start collecting that data and you can make all these decisions at the edge, I feel like then companies will actually, or have started to then adopt it. But do you, do you feel like it's taken a while for us to actually be able to, you know, with the advent of TensorFlow Lite, with the advent of better software tools, now we're starting to see the power of the Internet of Things where because I kind of feel like the IoT's been sort of just kind of stuttering here. It's been
0: it has you been, know, kind of like yeah. everyone's
2: saying, you know, next year it's gonna be the breakout year, next year's gonna be the breakout year. What what's what what's your thoughts sort of around that?
0: Yeah, it's actually kind of funny because I've done some writing on this recently in preparation for some talks that I'm giving later this year. But when I look back and analyze, I think if you looked at the Gartner hype cycles, one of the 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 examples that people use to show how technology trends are moving the IoT first appeared on the Gardner hype cycle, I believe, in 2012 or 2013. If you map its progress and regress on a timeline, it basically never moved past the peak of inflated expectations and then ultimately was dropped by Gardner back in 2019. And so obviously the hype cycle is not everything, but it is a good amalgam to to tell this struggle we've had of understanding like, okay, are we going to have 500 billion devices? Are we going to get to a trillion devices, like right. some have projected, or are we really just sort of waiting? And like you said, it's seems like it's always, well, next year's the breakout year, next year's the breakout year. And, you know, when we think about this, a lot of this comes back to complexity in, in the case of developers, right? Like with the IoT, I think the biggest problem that has blocked people from being able to deploy is the complexity of getting a solution deployed. I usually refer to this as the strings of wireless IoT, the things that really will hold developers back that cut off choice and make it much harder for us to actually implement solutions. And it starts with things like having to learn AT commands to work with cellular modems. And who wants to pull out a Hayes manual from 1986 to be able to actually talk to a network, you know? Or, you know, having IoT solution providers that tend to constrain developers too much by forcing you into their platform or or their solution. And so what we have done at Blues Wireless is really focused on bringing simplicity as much as possible to that story for developers. Because at the end of the day, what an IoT solution implementer wants is they want to take their sensors and their devices and then as quickly as possible, get those things into their cloud, into their dashboards, into their ultimate repository. And once they can do that, there's myriad things that they can do around Edge ML, model retraining, remote model updates. There's a brilliant set of technologies that are available at that point. But this this middle piece of secure, reliable connectivity that is the problem and is continues to be, I believe, the thing that keeps us from not seeing that explosive growth that, that we have been projecting for years. And so our approach and the way that we believe the problem can best be solved is by taking almost sort of a socket modem approach with our products. And the core product that we offer is something called the note card. And it is literally just a a cellular modem. We have a Wi-Fi equivalent as well, but the core product is a cellular modem that developers can communicate to and from from their actual embedded projects using JSON commands. So no AT commands, no certificate swapping, none of that. You know, typical exchange of of, of information with a server. It's literally a device that already has a secure connection to our cloud service over AT&T's network, and it works in 135 countries. And all a developer needs to do is make a, you know, I squared Sear serial connection to it, issue a couple of JSON commands and you can stream data back into your device. And so I know I'm getting into the weeds a little bit, but I I really think that creating simple, clean abstractions on the top of what is a super complex problem when it comes to secure IoT connectivity is the thing that a lot of developers have been waiting for so they can actually deploy pilots. So they can actually get sensors that are connected in the field. And I think once we have that point, Once solutions can actually securely connect, collect their data, get that information in the cloud, it unlocks all of those edge ML use cases that I think we haven't really been able to capitalize on before because the data has continued to be trapped in these dumb devices that we haven't been able to instrument.
2: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Are are you familiar with a company called NimbleLink? I am. Are you guys sort of must play in that same space with regards to essentially a, a modem interface, I guess, right?
0: In a similar space, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there there's a ton of different providers in this space. Nimble Link, obviously, Particle, where I was previously. There are some providers like Twilio, where, you know, the option of just buying the SIM and working with them on that regard. So in all of those cases, I think we we really believe that we're developers. What developers really need right now is the simplest, no-frills way of being able to actually use a device and not be tied in. One of the other things that I didn't mention that's sort of core to the product as well is that, when you purchase the note card, it actually comes with the data. So 500 megs of data over the course of 10 years, that's actually included in the cost of the device. And so there aren't monthly plans. That's actually another thing that I've seen, and, and I have experience as a developer, is when I'm building a prototype or a proof of concept, I really don't want to start the clock on a monthly fee not just to validate my idea, just to start collecting information. And so, and I think that's actually one of the things that we're seeing in the space is that solution providers like Blues and NimbleLink and others are starting to really understand how they need to adapt their offerings to give developers a simple, no frills way of getting connectivity. Because we want to make it possible for devices that are otherwise throwaway or fungible to be able to connect. Pete Warden, who I already had mentioned earlier, he uses this phrase, and he as he and I have talked, he likes to say peel-and-stick sensors. Getting into this place where sensors and connectivity is so low cost, and so the way that I like to look at it is it almost sort of makes it possible to put an IoT device in a greeting card. Not that you would, but at the same level of fungibility, right, you have something that is throwaway. It's single purpose. It may only live for a year or two. But the real important piece is the data that it's able to capture, the thing that it's able to tell you about the world that makes everything else around it better.
2: When you talk about the peel and stick, the first thing that my mind went to was RFID tags, right? So so back, you know, 20 years ago or so, I remember being a part of this, and RFID is going to be everywhere. It's going to completely revolutionize everything. And that's another technology, I think, that it found a different place, but it's not I don't believe companies like Walmart or Costco, all these places were just going to basically RFID tag everything. And from my understanding, it it never really got to that point.
0: Right. I remember Uh, that as well. Yeah, in the early 2000s, I had a couple of friends that ended up, you know, starting RFID-based companies and I think they did fairly well, but it didn't have the sort of Cambrian explosion that I think, you know, has has been predicted, was predicted for it. And I do worry sometimes about that being the same fate for the IoT. I mean, the prognostications versus what we've seen so far Hasn't manifested, but I still believe that the reason why is because of complexity on the part of the developer, right? The the promise of connectivity is there, but it has to be easy and it has to be affordable. And I think once you can get to that point, then it becomes a no brainer to leverage these services. So we talked a lot about
2: Internet of Things. Maybe let's let's talk a little bit about artificial intelligence. One of the things that I like to ask people, I guess, is how do you define artificial intelligence? If somebody said, you know, give me a sentence or two on that, or even say, what do you do when you're Day job, for example, you know, if you're touching on pieces of AI or ML, how would you describe what that is?
0: To me, it is about leveraging intelligence in the environment, leveraging the latent information that's in the environment around us to automate decision making and to allow companies, customers, individuals to anticipate or solve problems before they start without manual intervention. A lot of my thinking about this is, of course, bent towards the industrial IoT space because that's what I touch day in and day out. But I really do see that. I think that's, you know, to me, a lot of the promise of AI is when a business, for instance, let's just take some hypothetical industrial refrigeration company, the business of warranty management and service today, the state of the art is basically scheduling when trucks have to roll the service machines based on the average duration of failure for an individual device, right? And so you have some machines that will fail sooner. That's an early truck roll. You have some that will last longer. And the power of AI, and I still believe this is true, has always been that if you actually didn't base those timelines on an amalgam of all the data that you have about historical performance, but instead you understood or you you trained a model to be able to build those correlations around actually Failures tend to happen often when this particular motor starts to get five degrees hotter. And when that happens, now it's time to actually be proactive about it. We call that predictive maintenance, sure. And ultimately, I think that's a possibility. And there's a lot of power to that. To me, that's where AI is really interesting because it helps us, it helps us understand correlations that are impossible, not impossible, but much harder for humans to be able to pick out of all of the massive data that we have.
2: Yeah, for sure. You know, there's this other term floating around called the artificial intelligence of things, AIoT. Mm. And I think there are num- a couple of companies, Bosch in particular, but I, I know they've started to sort of glom onto that, onto that term. I actually just did a, a presentation last night virtually to a bunch of MBA students really around AIoT and sort of how it's different than just IoT. And the thing that I think about is is kind of reactionary versus proactive. right? Yeah. And so when you, start, when you start bringing machine learning and AI into the equation, you can be a little bit more proactive on these things rather than being so reactive when all of a sudden you've just sensed all this data. It's like, well, it's too late now, <laughs> right?
0: Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. and so
2: that, that's where I feel like maybe IoT is kind of, in some ways, hasn't really fully matured to the standpoint of letting people see, hey, you can actually save a lot of time, money, effort, cost, whatever it be, you know, to be a little bit more proactive in your
0: solutions. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, as with any form of, of thing that, that falls under that umbrella of what we like to refer to as digital transformation, I think a lot of companies, when they're looking at these things, well, they tend to start by thinking in terms of new business, you know, new revenue opportunities, new lines of business and things like that. And that's useful. But I, I really think that there's a whole lot of opportunity under this idea of, of of cost savings and helping companies actually run their businesses more efficiently. It has a an impact, a faster impact on the bottom line than it does on the top line per se. And and things like being proactive instead of reactive really helps with that. Because when you can talk in terms of truck rolls and service and warranty, you know, and re- redemptions and things like that, you can actually paint a through line to AI and IoT together, creating real savings for a company and helping them run more efficiently and deliver better returns to their own stakeholders and investors.
2: Yeah, for sure. You are talking about industrial, you know, motors and stuff like that. Are there any other applications, I guess, that maybe you maybe you aren't even a part of, maybe that you've seen in the news, I guess, where you sort of seen this overlap, I guess, of IoT and, and ML actually providing value?
0: Another one that I think is really is powerful, and I did some proof of concept work on this last year, is around leveraging machine vision in particular, but leveraging AI and ML to effectively add intelligence to analog systems without looping into the into the system physically. So this idea of sort of like the ultimate retrofit of being able to put a camera in front of a dial or a valve, whether it's an actual camera, I did some of that. Last year, the POC that I built was around the pool pump out in my backyard of being able to actually use AI and ML to read the gauge on the pressure tank so that I knew when I needed to backwash the filter, if there's an obstruction or anything along those lines. A lot of typical use cases will factor into looping into that system, taking out the analog sensor, adding in a digital sensor, et cetera, et cetera. But there's an interesting, I think this is still exploratory, but there's an interesting idea of being able to use, leverage these technologies to just put a camera in front of something and not interfere with the existing systems. I have a a coworker that's done some, done some work around that with thermal energy, uh, thermal imaging and radiators as well. And so, I think that's interesting. And the reason why the two tend to go together, of course, is obviously the AI and ML concept of vision at the edge. But then there is the the IoT piece of that is not only the backhaul, not only the ability to make a connection out to, to your ultimate cloud service, but I'm really fascinated with this idea of being able to leverage IoT connectivity to backhaul raw data, even if you're performing edge inferencing to backhaul training results perform retraining, and then perform over-the-air model updates back onto the Edge device, all using the connectivity that's there. So as your model is improved in the cloud, you can actually push those updates and that additional intelligence back down into the Edge device so that it continues to get the benefit of fast inferencing, but it gets better. It gets better in a way that can isn't possible today unless you do training in the cloud in order to, to improve the model. So those are interesting use cases to me. I, I love this kind of stuff. Yeah,
2: for sure. That is the internet in the internet of things, right? That's why these things are on the internet is so they can communicate with each other and get updated along the way. When you were talking about just looking at things, I remember we had a presenter come and he worked for a medical device company here locally. They were trying to essentially count the number of units were coming, that were coming off the line and they actually couldn't touch the equipment. For, for FDA rules and regulations, they actually couldn't update the equipment or really, just because it's there's a whole there's just a whole bunch of quality management systems and stuff that are in place. So what they did was they literally set up a camera, and there was a motor that spun around each time one of these devices was kicked out, and they put a dot on it, and they just watched the number of times the dot the dot went around. Right. It was sort of a, a unique way for them to be able to get the data that they wanted, be as you know unobstructive as possible, and still sort of get what they wanted done in a sort of unique, uh, creative way using computer vision. So. I know what you mean about that.
0: It's funny because I saw Stacey Higginbotham had written an article last week about, I think she said Tiny ML is still looking for its, its killer use cases, right? And I think that I understand the headline. I think the article is pretty good. She wasn't saying that there is no application of this process, but it almost kind of makes me wonder if, you know, as you asked the question, Justin, about AIoT, that as we're looking at the IoT still sometimes struggling to sort of cross into the into the slope of enlightenment again, back to Gartner terminology. And if tiny ML is still in that place of that sort of that storming phase of understanding where it's applicable, AIoT might actually be the answer here. That it's really the combination of these technologies that the industry has been looking for because it's the it's the connectivity that's essential, but it's the application of that connectivity at the edge to be able to anticipate problems, just to provide insights and information to to customers and the businesses that are looking for it. I think. It's a thought that I hadn't had until until we just started talking, but I think there's an interesting marriage that might be the solution to these technologies really uh, really getting into a into a positive place for large companies.
2: That's <laughs> funny you mentioned Stacey.' I'll, I'll have to uh, listen to that because she was actually at the tiny ml summit that I was at a couple of weeks ago and and I actually sat at the table with her when we had breakfast. and it was interesting. I, I didn't sense a negative vibe at all really. We were just sort of talking about the sessions and a lot of the sessions there, I could sense that they were still probably three to five years out from being commercialized. People were talking a lot about different ways that you could train models and have them applied with very, very low power, right? It was it was all yeah. about power consumption. And these are PhDs. These are people that are uh, part of research organizations that are funded by X, Y, and Z. There's some really cool platforms. You mentioned, you know, Edge Impulse. They're pretty much a leader in this space. They, Absolutely, they, were, they were pretty yeah. much the the big dog there. But there are a lot of other companies that are, are getting into this space as well, but it was very interesting to see the difference between applications that are people that are people actually, or I would say platforms and service providers, and then uh, research. And the, the research guys were very much focused on tuning, optimizing all sorts of white papers and all this sort of stuff about it, but it hadn't really, it hasn't, in my opinion, moved its way into what the actual industry is doing today. And so it was fun to see. It was a great, great conference. I would absolutely go back again and I'll, I, I will definitely have to take a look at what she was saying. But I think I side with her a little bit on that because, you know, with any new technology, I think is it's still trying to be figured out. And where where is the I guess where's the killer app, you know, for some of these things?
0: Absolutely. And, and we, we talk about that a lot. I mean, yeah, I, I don't think that You know, I think the timber of the article is not negative in the sense that TinyML is not going to get to that point, but that's just sort of an assessment of where, you know, where the space is in terms of where we all believe that that it can be. And it's not surprising that that's really still where a lot of the research is, because if you think about it, I mean, the genesis of TinyML was wake word detection on mobile devices and smart speakers, and so... I think in many cases, understand that as a very key use case and as a key killer app in many ways, but are looking for what's the, you know, what's the industrial killer app equivalent? What's the, the, you know, the the mass adoption killer app equivalent? I think the low-power research is going to benefit. This is actually an interesting thing for us at Blues because low power is part of really everything we do. We, you know, as as odd as it sounds, what we build with a note card is designed to be a low-power device that runs on cellular, which was really unheard of as recently as a couple of years ago. So this idea of being able to not only have edge devices that can run low power, that can run almost in sort of a DSP user space, but at the same time have cellular connectivity that's able to use the power it has to to connect to the cell network, because that's somewhat constrained by the laws of physics, but at the same time can sleep for long periods of time, can allow a device to to run off a battery and solar power really as long as it needs to. Because again, if we're going to build use cases with this idea of allowing companies not to have to roll trucks on a schedule, and yet we build devices that need batteries that have to be changed every six months, we haven't really solved, we've traded one problem for another one. And so I think a lot of that research will continue to benefit, but I agree, there is still this I think there's still this latent desire to find out, like, what are the half dozen things that are really going to define this space in this industry for us?
2: Yeah. Well, one of the things that I also like to talk to people about is, is you know, how, how would this technology affect future work or how, how is work being done by humans in the future? Potentially less truck rolls means there's less truck drivers, right? Do you view some of these things having a negative impact, I guess, on, on the workforce of the future?
0: That's such a tough question. It's a transformation in terms of how the kinds of jobs that people do. I would never argue that there won't be an individual negative impact, right, because that's always a possibility. But if we anticipate these things, if we're open and upfront about them, it's not about AI putting people out of work as much as AI enabling people to do work that matters more, that's more important, that's more critical. So I don't buy into this idea... I'm very skeptical of the idea of a generalized artificial intelligence at any point in the near future, if, if at all, right? We don't have a complete understanding of our own brains. I don't know how we would create a <laughs> create an intelligence, you know, using that limited understanding. But I do think that when it comes to, to job displacement, to role displacement, companies should approach that with an opportunity to find out, okay, what are the things that we can't do today that this enables us to do? What are the things? Whether it's in whether it's in R and D, whether it's new lines of business, whether it's just changing the way that we think about think about work, there is always an opportunity to leverage technology in a way that frees us up to do things that we that were either impossible or really difficult to do before.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree with that. What is a day in the life of a, a person in your role, and then also? as a follow-up, you know, people looking to get into the field, uh, what's any, any sort of advice that you would suggest people take with regards to books or conferences or, or, or other things? Mm-hmm. So
0: typically for me, I have a pretty interesting role and it's actually, I, I, I love what I do. I get to sort of do a mix of leading a team and also getting to do a bunch of hands-on work myself. That's something that I've learned over 22 years is kind of essential for me. And there's a couple of different engineering teams that I work with pretty closely day in and day out. And we're typically working on hardware, firmware, and web applications that are designed to help accelerate our customers in their adoption of, of Blue's technology. So whether it's AI, ML use cases or, or you know more general IoT connectivity use cases, we try to really make sure that customers can do more than just buy a dev kit from us and not really know where to go. And so we tend to do a lot of work in that space. The developer relations team is, is is part of my organization as well. And so I spend a lot of time working with our developer community, working with our our documentation, our getting started experience really across the board. So a typical day for me will usually involve some form of working towards an event or a workshop or something else or just speaking engagement that's up in, in the offing for me. The current one right now is at the end of this month, I, myself and the head of DevRel, a colleague of mine, are going to be traveling out to Portugal for the NDC Porto conference. And we're doing a two-day workshop called um, basically machine learning from the edge to IoT. And we're walking, or over the course of that two days, what we're going to be doing is walking participants through an introduction to ML, AI and ML for those that have never worked on it before, an introduction to IoT, and then how we can actually bring the two together. We'll be doing some work with TensorFlow Lite. We'll be doing some work with Edge Impulse. And really just introducing as many developers as we can to the opportunities in the space. And so we actually are going to be doing that workshop four times this year over the course of four different events. And so... There's obviously a ton of work uh, still to come with that. That workshops in about three weeks, and we're you know, as usual, we're behind the eight ball because that always happens, but we'll get there. So there's a lot of work right now to sort of get ready for those kinds of things and and that's the kind of stuff I love is just walking, giving developers an opportunity to to understand and learn those those new technologies. There's a few other things on my plate. You know, we do a lot of work on my team, a lot of the stuff that we do, As examples and samples for developers, we publish on Hackster.io. That's a channel that we absolutely love. And so we typically will do a couple of Hackster projects per month. A lot of times they end up being, not all the time, but I mean about half the time there ends up being an AI or ML component to them because it's just an area that we love to work in and we see a lot of interest from customers. So it's fun to get to do those things.
2: That's awesome. So yeah, I spoke at NDC when it was here in Minneapolis, probably, man, four years ago or something like that. It was quite some Mm -hmm. time ago. You know, Microsoft had actually put out this uh, dev board by MX chip, I think, and it basically connected to their Azure backend. So I, I did a whole session with, and some some very simple listening for sounds, sound detection movement, stuff like that. So, you know, sh- sort of showing data that you could quickly uh, get to the cloud. That's awesome that you're going to Portugal. I had actually submitted a couple talks because they happen all over the world. Are you going to any mm-hmm. other cities as, as a part of the
0: NDC? So we're doing Portugal in April, Copenhagen in May. And then Oslo in September, which I've spoken at NDC Oslo three times previously, and that's the original NDC conference, and I I love that one. So, yeah, I'll be doing that one. And then there's a few other events in the U.S. That conference is a, a developer event that typically takes place in the Wisconsin Dells every summer. So that's going to be in July. I'll be up doing a workshop and talk at that event as well.
2: Are you? You're you're going to be at that? Is it? Is it? I'm going to be at that are conference. You? Yeah. Yeah. Are you? Oh, awesome. Yeah. No, I I sent in a, a kind of a hands-on thing with IoT um, as well <laughs> to Clark, and then last month when they had this sort of call for speakers. So.
0: Oh, nice. Um,
2: oh, yeah. Sorry, but you're going to be kind of doing this 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 ML IoT thing.
0: We're going to do a half-day workshop. I, yeah, I I don't know if it's going to be an ML IoT. We haven't decided on the the topic for that one yet because it's still kind of. Uh, a little bit ahead. I think we're going to adapt our two day workshop into more of a half day kind of thing. So,
2: yeah. Very cool. Yeah. No, I've not been to that before. I, you know, le- last year was the first time I think they brought it back to yes. Wisconsin Dells since the pandemic. And then, and then this year, yeah, I, I submitted a talk and I haven't heard anything back. So I'm assuming it, it wasn't accepted, but I'm going to try and go, barring all the other stuff that my kids do in the summertime. That's, that's what's hard is they're already signed up for day camps and stuff like that. But, oh, um, that's yeah. Awesome. I know.
0: That is always tough. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, mean, I don't know when they're going to announce all the speakers and everything, so there may still be time. But I, I've been familiar with that event for a long time. Clark is actually a friend of mine. We used to work together at Microsoft way back when, so we've kept wow. in touch over the years. And
2: that's cool. Yeah, yeah. No, I just I just kind of found out about that community just only a couple of years ago. I was like, how did I not know about this? I'm kind of in my own Twin Cities bubble, right? And and you're you're where? Are you over in Madison?
0: Um, I'm actually in Austin, Texas. That's where oh, I'm based okay. now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But so, yeah, for, for those that are, are listening to the podcast, y'all check out that.us because, yeah, it's an event. It's been around for a while, but they have been really growing in the last couple of years, and it's uh, it's a good set of events. For sure, and they have one in Austin,
2: right? They're, they're, they there is one had in conference. Austin in
0: May. It was going to be in, in January, May. still a challenging time, so we, they moved it back to May, and I'll be speaking of that one as well. Not doing a workshop. But I'll be doing it. I also do a series of talks on using Python on microcontrollers. Cause of course I do AI ML stuff. Of course I love Python and I I love CircuitPython and MicroPython as well. So I do some talks on, you know, showing people how they can leverage their Python language skills on microcontrollers as well.
2: That's awesome. Well, yeah, so I, I do include links and stuff in the liner notes for this for these podcasts. So I'll be sure to get both, you know, links off to you and any other stuff that you want to share with me at the end of this so people can uh, take a look at it uh, in the notes. This is so great that you're getting out in the community and sort of sharing, showing examples, doing workshops. You know, I'm not sure if I shared this with you, but I, I teach a class on IoT at the University of St. Thomas here in, in St. Paul. I've been doing that for a number of years. When the pandemic hit, it's very hard to teach people. This was this is graduate students that are going through a software, like a a, a master's program in software to, you know, to, to use breadboards and plugins, things like that. So, Kind of took a little bit of a hiatus over the past year, but I'm coming back in the fall, and I'm not going to do the same old IoT class. Now I'm actually kind of going to be using the Tiny ML book by O'Reilly, the the oh, book that great. Uh, the guys yeah. that you mentioned. That that's kind of going to be my syllabus in some ways. It's like you yeah, know we're going awesome. to learn. Yeah, so the the class is like 16 weeks long, and we're going to use the first part, kind of building some stuff on Particle, just to kind of get the data to to the cloud. But now let's actually work on actually running. You know, machine learning at the edge. So I'd love to, you know, I think we should talk offline a little bit more about sort of how you're structuring some some stuff. I'd love to share with you sort of what I'm thinking about as well. But
0: Oh, yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, that's great. And yeah, that the TinyML book is is a fascinating, is a phenomenal one. I have, I got a copy. I think I got like an earlier copy of that when Pete and Daniel first started writing it. And that's actually one of my favorites. I think you had asked a little while ago about books and whatnot. I didn't want to forget Probably my absolute all-time favorite is the Grokking Deep Learning by Andrew Trask. That is, it's, it's a Manning book, and it is, I absolutely love it. He actually walks from first principles of understanding deep learning outside of any frameworks altogether. So you basically build your own sort of first simple deep learning models and convolutional neural networks using just Python and NumPy. And then you sort of build up from there. But it's a really good sort of hands-on kind of book. That was one of the first ones I really dug into.
2: Nice. Yeah, that, that, that's great. I will definitely look that up and include that in the notes. How can people connect with you? Find you on LinkedIn, I guess? Twitter?
0: Yeah, LinkedIn, Twitter. I'm Brandon Sat- B. Satram on LinkedIn and Brandon Satram on Twitter. And both of those places, I um I have a blog that I keep meaning to actually update. But, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> other stuff to do, but uh, I do sure. I do write pretty regularly on the on the Blues blog. If you go to blues.io, our blog there has a fairly set of, a good set of information, and I publish projects on hackster.io as well, where I'm also there's Brian and Satrum.
2: Very good, very good.
0: Yeah, is there anything else that
2: you wanted to talk about maybe that I didn't uh, touch on?
0: No, I think this is, this has been a great chat. I love I love talking about AIML. I'm glad you brought up the the AIOT. Concept. I know it's going to get its buzzword treatment, but I think there's a lot of validity to the, to the marriage of these technologies and really taking us to, to new heights.
2: Awesome, for sure. Well, yeah, and I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, you speaking on July 7th um, at our Applied AI Meetup, and that will be at uh, 630 Central Time for those that are listening. And I'll be sure to get all the word out to everybody here as we uh, start uh, planning for, for that event. But yeah, Brandon, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, look forward to keeping in touch with you and um, sharing more and more about you know what this what's going on in this space. There's a lot of fascinating things. It's it's always evolving, always changing. So that's what I really enjoy. And I really enjoy having guests on the program and just sort of talk through with them what, what they're seeing. So I always
0: learn something. Yeah, thanks, Jess. This is a great conversation.
1: You've listened to another episode of the Conversations on Applied AI podcast. We hope you are eager to learn more about applying artificial intelligence and deep learning within your organization. You can visit us at AppliedAI.mn to keep up to date on our events and connect with our amazing community. Please don't hesitate to reach out to Justin at AppliedAI.mn if you are interested in participating in a future episode. Thank you for listening.